You know, it's good to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, I know that there's some Game 7s going on tonight in hockey, and uh, you always wonder if the Canadian part of us is going to win over on nights like this, but it's good to see everyone here. See an Oilers jersey over here. Uh, to my left, got a fan there. I know I have a Kings fan over here, and, uh, you know, it's going to be good. So, uh, <laughs> going to be a good night, but glad that you all came to church tonight. We're jumping back into our series, Small Book, Big Ideas, Knowing What We Need to Know. And so, for those of you who have been here with us through this, you know that this has been a study through the book of First John. And for those of you just joining us, welcome. Uh, we're going to be looking at First John chapter 5, if you want to find that spot in your Bibles today. But there's been four themes so far throughout this book. And the first one was found in chapter 1, verse 4. And uh, it talked about that one of the reasons John wrote, one of the themes of 1 John, was so that he, he would make our joy as Christians complete. Now, how many of you know as Christians we have reason for joy? Amen? And that joy isn't always dependent on what's happening around us and what's going on in our lives at the time, but that joy is dependent on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's done for us, and on how he leads us, right? And so John spent a lot of time at the beginning of this letter reminding us that we have joy, we have reason for excitement, we can celebrate these things. Secondly, we looked at in 1 John 2, 1, was he wrote so that we will not sin. It was important to John that Christians recognize, that the church recognize that the goal is not to sin. Sin isn't something that we deal with flippantly. It cost Jesus his life. He willingly went and died for our sins on the cross. And yet John is writing to instruct us that we are called to live a different way. There's a way in which the world lives. There's a way in which Jesus has called his followers to live that is contrary to those ways. So we looked at that for a few weeks. And then in verse chapter 2, verse 26, the third theme was he wrote us about those trying to lead you astray. Now, this was a major theme in this letter right from the get-go. There were some people known as the Gnostics, and they were trying to bring false teaching into the church. They were trying to lead Christians away from the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And we're going to talk about that a bit tonight. But he was writing about those who were trying to lead people astray. And finally, in the final theme we're introducing this evening is in chapter 5, verse 13. John writes that we may know the Son and have eternal life. And so we're going to be looking at this today, and uh, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 5. Now, let me tell you just a little tick I have, okay? A little pet peeve sometimes, something I struggle with. I sometimes struggle when people say to me, God told me. God told me this, or God said this to me, or God said that. And I'm okay with that wording, because I do believe God still speaks to us. Who's with me? Anyone? Okay. I believe he does. Where I draw the line, though, is when what God seems to have told somebody doesn't line up with his word and the scriptures, and the written word. You guys get where I'm going here? I had, some, I had a friend say to me once, you know, God has clearly spoken to me that I don't need the church. I don't need to attend the church. In fact, all I need is God. I could just walk with him. I could just live with him. I could just, you know, uh, worship God, walk with God. I don't need other people to help me on my journey. And I struggled with that because I know the written word clearly communicates to us that we can't do life alone. Amen? And that God has brought us together alongside one another so that we can encourage each other, build each other up, help each other on this journey of faith. And so God telling you something contrary 
to what is written in the word just doesn't sit right with me. Are you with me? You see, Jesus is never who we make him to be, but Jesus is revealed in the scriptures to us. And I wonder how much stuff over time has been said in the name of God or in the name of Jesus, and yet the scriptures would say otherwise and would point us far from these claims. You know, I I used to say it like this. I wonder how many things God's been blamed for in this world that maybe God had nothing to do with at all or had nothing to say on at all. And so this is just a healthy warning. Before we start claiming to speak for God or Jesus, let's make sure that we always go back to his word and confirm that it's consistent with what the scriptures tell us about who Jesus is. And so John's premise in this letter is that God himself has told you who Jesus is. And now you can either believe it or you don't have to believe it. You have a choice. You could choose to trust the written word or not trust it, but don't do anything else with it and don't claim anything else beside it. Don't start making up your own version of these events. You see, we live in a world, and we talked about this a few weeks back, where truth is relative to a lot of people, but God has spoken to us in his word. And so John here is referencing a validation of who Jesus is, a testimony of who Jesus is. In contrast to what some other people are saying and have taught about Jesus, John has written this epistle, this book to believers who had false teachers in the church creeping in and saying, you don't need this, you don't need that, you need to believe this special revelation, you don't have to worry about the crucifixion, that's all a little too crazy. They were saying all sorts of things that were contrary to what had been known by God about who his son was. And so that's a big part of the reason why John is writing to us in this letter. And so tonight we're looking at the last big idea. And in order to to do this, I want to set it up this way that we need to know the, the, the context of what's going on here. There are people creeping into the church, the Gnostics, who are claiming all sorts of heresy and false teachings. And John is trying to bring them back to the point of it all. And the point of it all is... Jesus, okay? Sunday school answer there. But namely, what the Word has revealed to us about Jesus. Let's read 1 John 5 and verses 5 to 13. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which He has given about His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the fourth theme of 
this book. Now, some of you at verses 5 and 6 are probably wondering, what is that talking about, okay? I read three commentaries on this this past week. I looked at the NIV application, I looked at a Tyndale scholar, and I looked at William Barclay, and all three of them seemed to agree that this was one of the most complicated verses in all of Johannine literature, okay, and all the writings of John. Um, some of this stuff on the surface can probably be a little confusing. What are we talking about water? What are we talking about blood? Jesus didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. Well, what does that mean? Some of you are probably sitting there going, yep, I hear you. And uh, the first thing that we notice in this scripture that I want to bring up just outside of that for a second is that we notice a pattern, and we see this word testify or testimony seven times, eight times in some translations. But it's all throughout there. We keep coming back to this word testify or testimony. And so John is obviously trying to communicate something that he believes to be true, and he's pointing to different things to prove his point. He wants to let us know what is it that God has said about his son and what points us to that? And so, how many of you like watching police and law shows on TV? Anyone? Anyone into this? Okay. I won't lie on Netflix. I'm like constantly rewatching The Lincoln Lawyer. Okay. I just enjoy, you know, the way McConaughey plays that lawyer in that movie. But uh, <laughs> when, you, when you look through some of this stuff, right, generally speaking, there are three ways in court if you want to present evidence and prove something. You would do a few things. You would personally testify. Some people would personally testify at their own trial. Uh, secondly, you'd call witnesses forward who could maybe, you know, bolster that testimony and give some credibility to it. Or you could have, you know, different things like documents, photos, videos, etc. But John saw these things himself. We have to remember that this is the same John who wrote a gospel for us, okay? And he's giving testimony to what he saw. But more than that, he actually points to God's testimony as being the overall thing that we're hearing here. And he uses three things that testify and give witness to who Jesus is. And I want to just look at those three things quickly. Uh, number one, water. Um, how many of you like water? Anyone? Water feel refreshing, right? Just, just something about it, right? Even just a picture like that. Some of you just want to jump in there. It's so warm today. But in Matthew chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. And so when we talk about water here, we're talking about the time where Jesus begins his earthly ministry. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and aligning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so this is the start of Jesus's earthly ministry. And it starts in water. It starts in the water, just like we saw here tonight, in the water, right? In the waters of baptism, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and his ministry started in water. And something that I found just this past week as I was thinking about this was notice how Jesus starts his ministry. He starts it from this place of love and approval. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. He doesn't start his ministry from feeling guilty or feeling condemned or feeling, you know, bad about himself. But immediately as he begins his ministry, he has his father's approval. And how freeing that must have been 
to begin to minister on the earth, just starting with that love and approval. I'm speaking to anyone in Christ tonight and Christ in you. When God looks at you, he sees his son. He sees that and he loves you and he approves of you and he cares for you and he, he, he desires good things for you, amen? And so, you know, we also start from that place, not where we have to earn God's love or we have to do a bunch of things in order that God won't be upset with us, but he, he loves us, he cares for us, he walks with us, he's with you. Maybe some of you, maybe someone in this room tonight, you've just felt guilty, you felt burdened down, you felt condemned. Jesus, his baptism starts with approval. His ministry started knowing that God loved him and God so loves us too, okay? In John chapter one, John gave this testimony. He said, I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down on and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John, who was writing this book, this, this letter of 1 John, saw this and knew this, right? Or actually, This was John the Baptist, sorry. But he recorded this story of John the Baptist's testimony that this is the Son of God. And so we have the, the testimony of God through the water, secondly, through the Spirit, we hear. Water, Spirit, and blood. Let's talk about the Spirit for a few minutes. Um, in John chapter 16 and verses 12 to 15, we read these words. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he'll receive what he'll make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and will, he'll make it known to you. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life as Christians is to reveal the truth to us, amen? And to lead us into the truth and to guide us into the truth and to give us a greater revelation of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he desires for us even right now. And the Holy Spirit leads us into truth. The Holy Spirit reveals to us who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 17, there was this incident where Jesus and a couple of his disciples were up on a hill. And some of you know this story as the transfiguration. But the scripture says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But they, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And here, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the work of the Spirit. And we see the voice of God once again giving approval, testifying that this is my Son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And the instruction he gives to the disciples is to listen to him. Now, if you keep reading this story, I can't go on too much longer on this, but if you keep reading this story, you'll see that their next idea was to put up a bunch of shelters and live in this moment, right? But God wasn't going to let them do that because he had so much more for them to do going forward. And so the Holy Spirit gives testimony to who Jesus is, the blood. Let's look at this third testimony that we read about. And you know what this is going to take us to the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 54 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up 
his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed these words, surely he was the son of God. Surely he was the son of God. Blood poured out on a cross so that you, so that I can be forgiven. And as the earthquake happened and as things shook, as the, you know, as the curtain of the temple was torn in two from, from top to bottom, all the centurion guarding Jesus that day could say was surely he was the son of God. You see, even at the cross, we see testimony from the centurion that surely Jesus is who he claimed to be. And this is written in God's word as a testimony to us from God himself. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, it says, When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so three things testify about who Jesus was. The water, his baptism. We heard the Father's voice, the Spirit who leads us into truth and the blood that was shed on Calvary so that we could be forgiven. But how many of you know that throughout history and throughout the years, there have been many who have questioned this stuff. There have been many who have tried to find holes within this. There have been many who have sometimes shrunk back from the truth for a variety of reasons. And this was happening in the church when John was writing this letter. And this has also happened in our times very recently. Let me give you an example. At the World Council of Churches, underwritten in large part by the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, on November 4th to 7th in 1994, 2,200 people from 49 states and 27 countries filled the Minneapolis Convention Center. And on the discussion for the agenda for this particular meeting was to re-image God, to reimagine God. And the conference called for a second reformation that would begin some radical theological surgery on the church's belief system. They were starting to tear things apart. They were starting to mess with doctrines. The idea was to soften the message. And the idea was to turn from our former anchors of truth in the events of Scripture, and instead turn to what they called Sophia, wisdom. The place that's in us where the entire universe resides and to become a more feeling-oriented faith. And for a multicultural therapeutic society like ours, this religion was made to order, they thought. And self-discovery, they wanted to be the new platform for how we receive divine revelation. This was 1994, and I'm not making this up. You can check it out. But historic Christology was dismantled in this meeting, and the main target of those who attended was the cross. They struggled with the cross. They struggled with the event, with the blood that was poured out, with the brutality of it, with how strong it was. They felt it was way too violent. They felt that somebody hanging on the cross was a difficult message to get across to society. It was too much for them to deal with. 
They want to simply listen to the God from within and kind of soften the message. And I must be clear about one thing, is that these people who were having this discussion were people who were definitely committed to the church. People whose lives were nurtured in Christian settings, pastoring, and they were willing to utterly dispose with traditional Christianity here. And this reimagining of who God is is still very prevalent, I would think, today in our society. Even among some theologians and scholars who want to clean up the gospel of Jesus and make it a little easier for some people to accept it. Now, some of you hear a story like this, and you immediately think to yourself, well, that's awful. (laughs) This is heresy, and I would agree with you. But are we ever uncomfortable with some things in Scripture ourselves? Is there ever certain things that you read in the Scriptures that... That's, that's difficult. Anyone? Just me? Do we ever try to clean up the gospel message sometimes and just ignore stuff that makes us uncomfortable? And if so, how do we do this? There was a gentleman named Thomas Jefferson. Anyone ever heard of him before? He was the third president of the United States of America. He was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and he was the face at the time of republicanism in America. And he, Thomas Jefferson, had problems with certain aspects of the Gospels and the Scriptures. And so he quite literally decided to cut out all the stuff that he had a problem with. Okay, so you see the picture on the screen. It sort of shows like portions of the Scripture that were cut out of the book here, right? And he literally cut out the things that made him uncomfortable. And he kept like 10%. And he cut out any claims of of Jesus as the Son of God. He cut out his miracles or his supernatural works, even the crucifixion, the resurrection. He wanted nothing to do with that. He literally cut these things out of the Bible and only kept what he wanted. Thomas Jefferson wanted a Jesus who was just a good moral philosopher. That's what he was comfortable with. That's what, he, was, that's what he, he cared about, and that's what he wanted. And being an enlightened man, Jefferson didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in this idea of the resurrection. So he cut it all out, and really what he did was he composed his own image of who Jesus is. And that image being Jesus, the good moral philosopher. And his work actually was published, and it became known as the Jefferson Bible, which you can still buy today. Um, It was published as recent as 1996. I'm not saying you should go buy it. In fact, I'd probably encourage you not to. But, you know, it was something that he published and he put it out there. And all of his biases, all the things he wasn't comfortable with, he publishes it and puts it out there. And some of us hear this and we think, oh my goodness, right? Like, you want to talk about heresy? You want to talk about, you know, just terrible things to do? This would be, you know, pretty high up on the list when it comes to defacing, you know, the pages of Holy Scripture, But sometimes when you think about it, and really when you think about it, I had to ask myself this question, and I'll ask it to us tonight. You see, what Thomas Jefferson did was was, was create his own version of the life and person of Jesus Christ, changing completely who he was to fit his expectations and who he was comfortable with. See, Thomas Jefferson, even after doing so, still claimed to be a devout follower of Jesus, However, as history shows, it was after a Jesus that he wanted and a Jesus that he himself created. And I know it seems crazy and even to some offensive what Thomas Jefferson ended up doing with the Holy Scriptures, 
And being a person who believes in the inspiration of God's voice in the scriptures, I'm certainly not a fan of, of what he did. But you really have to ask yourself sometimes, did Thomas Jefferson just do publicly what we sometimes do privately with the scriptures? Did Thomas Jefferson just do publicly what maybe sometimes we get a little tempted to do privately with the scriptures? What are the parts of the book that you run away from? What are the teachings of Jesus that, oh, that stings? I really wish he didn't say that. Certainly he couldn't mean that. What parts of it do we avoid? You know, I'm staying away from James. That's, that's pretty tough stuff sometimes. I guess what I'm getting at is, does the Jesus of Scripture ever make us uncomfortable? And do we also ever try, and maybe not intentionally, but do we ever try to also give him a makeover of our own? Do we ever nitpick our favorite verses and favorite stories and ideas from the Bible and keep and live by what we like and just ignore and even figuratively just cut out the things that we don't like? Those are questions I think that we all have to wrestle with. You see, William Temple warned about the nature of theological error when he noted that if our, con if our conception or view of God is radically false or if it misses the mark, or if it's incomplete, or if it's of our doing, then the more devoted we are to that image of God, the worse off it's going to be for us in actually following God. You see, in the same way Thomas Jefferson publicly picked and chose what he liked or was comfortable with about Jesus, we got to be careful that we don't do this, even privately. And this passage that we're in today shows us the many ways that God has given us testimony about who Jesus is. And we looked at three different testimonies, the water, the blood, the Holy Spirit, and they lead us to the truth. They point us to the truth. There's a proof of who God is. We find out about who he is. And John is telling us that no claim to spirituality is legitimate if it, if it dismantles or tries to dismantle what God has said to us in his son, Jesus Christ, amen? And this is what makes that a reimagining conference that was held in Minneapolis so harmful and so damaging. See, it is evidence of teachers becoming false prophets by claiming a divine voice, but departing from the voice who taught, who taught us, who gave us revelation of Jesus Christ, of God himself. You see, the conference set to provide a theology that was empty of Jesus and what he came to do. And as a result, it built a doctrine of life and salvation that made Jesus almost unnecessary. And this is the kind of people John was coming up against when he was writing this letter in 1 John chapter 5. He was referring to the Gnostics. He was referring to false teachers. He's seen people trying to lead people astray and ignore certain parts of the gospel message. John says we can't do that. John says we dare not do that. John wants to make it clear that we all search for life and meaning. And the life we search for isn't found within ourselves or anything else. The life that we're searching for, the freedom that we seek is not found within, but it's found in him. It's found in Jesus. It's found in what he has done for us on the cross. It, it's found in who he is and how he wants us to live in him and him in us. Are you with me? 
1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13 says this. The worship band can come up. And this is the testimony God has given us. God has given us eternal life. And this life is found in his son, is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's very clear. He doesn't really mince words here. This isn't something I could change or transform to make it sound easier for some people. But he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son, you've found what you've been searching for. Whoever knows Jesus, you've found that missing piece. You've found that, that, that hole kind of that you've been trying to fill. Perhaps we try to fill it with all sorts of other things, and they don't satisfy and they don't work. But whoever has the Son has life. On the opposite end, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's a tough word. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you so that those of you who believe in Jesus may know that you have eternal life. You see, God came to us not just to impress us, but to save us and to love us and to point us to him. And he came down in the incarnation, took on human flesh, lived a life among us, sinless, taught truth to us, taught us how to live, taught us the best way to live, went to a cross willingly and died, paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You see, God has made an offer to each of us to truly live the life that he has planned for us. Amen? And so here's my question. How many of us know this life? How many of us know the Son? How many of us have encountered Jesus personally? If so, that's a great thing. That's an amazing thing. But how many of us still need to know him? How many of us still need to know his grace? How many of us, we've tried hard filling, you know, that whole something that's missing with so many other things, and we just recognize we just need God. We need Jesus. Anyone here tonight say that? Anyone? Why don't we pray together tonight? If this is you, I want you to pray with me tonight, but I'm going to get everyone to pray this with me. Can you pray with me? Let's pray together, audibly and out loud. Maybe some of us, for the hundredth time, maybe some of us for this first time. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. 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 And if you prayed that with us tonight, uh, please don't leave without telling somebody. Uh, stop by the next step table in the back. Come chat with one of the pastors. We just love to tell someone you came with. We just want to celebrate with you in that, that, uh, that that's a commitment you made tonight. Whoever has the Son has life, church. That's an encouragement for us tonight.
and uh, that life is eternal. Amen? And so I'm going to ask everyone just to stand with me. Father, I just pray, God, that you would just continue to speak to us, God. Continue to reveal to us who you are, God. Keep us from trying to create you into who we're comfortable with, God. But would you reign supreme in our lives each and every day? In Jesus' name, amen.